Welcome to Realising Your Potential, a leadership podcast from Accolade Wines. Accolade Wines is a leading global wine company with famous wine brands loved and trusted around the world, including Hardy's, St. Hallet, Grand Berge, Banrock Station, House of Arras and Echo Falls. The show was originally recorded for our people as a learning and development tool, but due to popular demand, it is now available on Spotify, Google Podcasts and many more. If you would like to contribute, ask questions, or just share some comments, please get in touch with Accolade Wines on LinkedIn. I'm your host, Ange Murphy, Chief People and Communications Officer. In this second series, I speak to some fantastic guests from our external networks who share their personal journeys, leadership tips and advice as we continue to build our high-performance culture. In this episode, I speak with General Legal Counsel and cancer survivor, Sarah Suzak. Sarah has spent over 15 years in senior legal and leadership positions in large FMCG companies around the world. In 2017, Sarah faced one of her greatest challenges at the height of her career and as a new mum. At a point in her life, as she said, she was feeling her most blessed. She was diagnosed with a rare cancer. In coming to terms with her diagnosis, not prognosis, and through reframing her language and mindset, Sarah found a way to thrive in the most challenging and confronting of circumstances. I really enjoyed my conversation with Sarah and I hope you do too. So let's get started. Sarah Cizak, welcome to Accolade Wines, Realising Your Potential podcast series. I'm super delighted to have you join me today. Obviously, I know you personally and I'm really interested in talking to you about your career uh, because these are podcasts for leaders and for employees, but also really interested to speak to you about um, your cancer journey and you're a cancer survivor and um, how you manage through that and what you've learned from that. So welcome. Thanks, Ange. I, you know I'm a bit of an um, extreme extrovert, actually, but I'm an incredibly nervous um, speaker and sharer. So I'm doing this purely for you, my dear. Well, that's very kind of you. Don't worry, you're in good company because I'm incredibly nervous when I do these too, but it will be, you'll be super. I'm going to focus initially on your career. So can you just give us an overview of your career to date? Yeah, sure. I think, um, just bear with me, it might be a bit of a long answer because I think our careers have a lot more elements than just our day job. That's kind of my, my personal view. And I think when, you know, maybe like many people in my generation, we weren't given a lot of options when we were young. It was kind of like take your pick out of doctor, lawyer and accountant. But I had a brilliant mum who used to just say, just do what you're passionate about. And she's like, what do you mean by that? Because <laughs> it doesn't help me. And she used to say, if you love cleaning toilets, clean toilets and you'll have a toilet cleaning empire. And I think the message from her was do what you love and the money and the success will come. So when I selected my university degree, I had a couple of hints about what my passions were. Um, and they've become more clear, I think, the older I get. But the first one is really people, how they think, how they survive. And the second, I think, was a strong sense of social justice. And I think this led me to enrol in an arts law degree, majoring in both psychology and law. I did my degree in psychology, but I ultimately decided to pursue a career in law. And I went straight into private practice, starting as a paralegal at a law firm called Dibs Vodka Gosling. And I ultimately graduated as a solicitor there. But I got my first secondment in-house to Colgate Palmolive when I was quite young. And I worked there as a secondee as a corporate counsel with the then general counsel and his team. 
very shortly into that role, the GC who I admired greatly, his name was Robert Coltai, he retired after almost 30 years of the company. And I was lucky enough to take on a much more senior role than I was probably ready for as the legal director there for South Pacific. After a few years in that role, I was invited by the same company to become a specialist, so a legal specialist, but working in all places in the world in Paris at their oral care innovation centre. I was responsible there for marketing and innovation law for Africa, Middle East, Europe and South Pacific. So that, that role took me overseas. I was in Geneva, New York and a few years as a Parisian local, which was beautiful. But while I was there, um, it was at that point that I kind of made the decision that we can talk about later, which was a sabbatical from law. And I got a call from the CEO and pastor at a charity I'd been a volunteer at for so many years, but their mission is very close to my heart. And they needed a corporate to help them raise a lot of money and establish a corporate network of donors. So I flew home from Paris. I worked in a non-legal role as a partnerships manager and we can talk about that later, but it was from there that I was invited to interview for my current role as general counsel for Coca-Cola South Pacific, which I've been doing now very happily for the last seven or so years. But, um, you know, it doesn't end there. I think, you know, it's important to add that I'm also a, a proud board member of two boards, being the Wayside Chapel in Sydney and also the Coca-Cola Australia Foundation, which I think, if I'm honest is probably the most satisfying aspects of my career. Um, and then on top of that, because I think it's very true that um, we're more than our jobs, and I, I also became a mother. I've got a young five-year-old called Stella and a stepdaughter called Jada, who's now 23. <laughs> and, yeah, I just think every mother should add these roles to their CV. They're very much you know, part of what we do full-time every day. Thanks, Sarah. You've had such a great um, career. And, you know, what I, I love about what I hear in your career is, you know, follow your passion. I think it's such great advice to everyone. Follow your passion, um, take every opportunity, and you really do bring your whole self to work. So you bring the things that you're passionate about externally, you bring your family, and you bring your um, discipline of law. So I think there's some, some really great tips in there around um, your career for others to listen to. Yeah. The journey to becoming a lawyer was not an easy one. Can you tell me about how you managed through that? You know, my teenage years at home, like like I, I'm sure is the case for many people, were a little bit difficult. And, and I'm sure that anyone who met me today wouldn't quite recognise me from those earlier years. I was a bit of an unsettled and unhappy, sensitive young, young lady. But I did move out of home at a very young age. So I, you know, I needed to support myself. I didn't quite have the luxury to study part-time and work part-time. So for my whole law degree, I studied by correspondence, which just meant I wasn't on campus and I had to, you know, read the materials myself as they were sent to me. And I worked full-time as a paralegal throughout that degree. And I think in many respects, while it seemed very difficult at the time, working full-time and trying to finish a law degree, it ultimately set me up for a greater range of choices in my career because by the time I had graduated, I had so many years full-time practical experience that I got a role as a solicitor in that firm without the need for any of those stressful clerkship applications. And the partners of that firm remain some of my you know, best friends today and I credit them with really setting me up for success. But I think 
what that period taught me the most was the importance of self-discipline and motivation. I think sometimes when you're forced into a situation, you have no choice but to sink or swim. So if you have bills to pay <laughs> and an early sense that, you know, this is going to be true for the rest of your, your life, then you learn pretty quickly the need for and the value of hard work. And I think a lot of my work ethic was developed during this early period where most young people were probably being a little bit more irresponsible than I was. <laughs> um, you've held a number of senior executive roles in legal functions with really big FMCG companies around the world. When you were doing your, when you, you just talked about how you, you got your degree, when you were doing that, was that, was that in your sights or was it just, did, did it growth come around intentionally or was it a little bit of both? <laughs> yeah, no, at first I was absolutely convinced that I would become a psychologist because my ultimate love in life is helping other people. But I've kind of found other ways to fulfill that side of my personality through volunteer work at charities and board positions in the nonprofit sector. But as far as my legal career goes, I think I learned really early on that private practice law wasn't for me. I didn't do well in that environment. I found the detailed analysis and research didn't suit my personal need for speed. I wasn't close enough to the decision making. So I think it's really important in our careers to recognise that because we, we might not add as much value as sort of alpha high achieving women in the workforce like, like to do, that doesn't reduce our inherent worthiness. It just means there might be a better place or environment out there where you'll thrive. And I think that's okay. Um, you know, people in, in law firms used to call me the, the shortcut taker. I never thought it was sensible to spend much time doing long division if you had a Casio calculator that would compute it for you in seconds. And I think that makes me sound lazy, but it's not true. I think I just like to be really efficient, make decisions quickly and instinctively. And I think that's why in-house, it was re really clear to me very quickly that it suited me better. What's the best career advice you've been given so far? I think I've probably got a couple of golden nuggets to share here. One's a bit more cliched, but still so important. But the other one's probably the genius one in my view. So I think one of the most practical but liberating moments I had in my career was when somebody told me it doesn't need to be a linear career, that it's okay to move on a slightly crooked path and not just the good old sort of cliched ladder towards the the land of, you know, the boss land. Um, and I think when I made the decision to take a career break from the law, many traditional mentors told me that it was risky, that I'd never get back into the law, that I was giving up my financial security. And, you know, they were really well-meaning words of advice. But for me, the bigger risk was the risk to my personal happiness and the regret of not having done it. So, yeah, somebody wise telling me that a straight line was not the only path towards success, I think, was was very helpful. Um, but by far the best advice I've ever been given was, and I carry it with me everywhere I go, but it was from the pastor and CEO of the Wayside Chapel who used to say that if we want to have the most optimal workplace culture and a high-performing team, then we need to establish the habit of what he sort of coined, talking people up behind their backs. And I just thought that was genius because this may not have been what he meant, but it's what I took from it. And you'll, you'll know this, that far too often in work environments and teams, we suffer from the tall poppy syndrome. And it's, for some odd reason, we get pleasure from watching other people fail 
or we find their success in some way threatening to our own. But I think ultimate work nirvana from a happiness and work productivity point of view would be a place where everyone kind of spent their time talking about and celebrating other people's successes. It, it's kind of countercultural, but the, the direction we should all be heading, in my view. I mean, I love I love that, Sarah. I just think that it's a little bit like having, it's a little nice, in- it's a nice intention to have when you go to work. Um, I think it's, it's a really, it's a le- really lovely lesson to think about. What's the biggest lesson you've learned so far in your career? Hmm. I think that without a doubt, the most fruitful lesson I've learned in my career is that relationships are the cornerstone of all careers and all great opportunities. And I don't mean that in a traditional kind of corporate networking kind of way, because I'm actually quite bad at that and I tend to avoid it. I'm talking more about real life organic relationships, like the one that you and I formed when we were working together. But, you know, I never stray from absolute prioritization and deep investment in all of my relationships right throughout my career, even after I leave a job. You know, I'm still very close friends with people I've worked at at my very first job and across all level of the organizations. And yeah, I think that, you know, most of my roles in, in my career have come about due to a referral from a close connection or a past colleague made along that pathway. So, you know, I, I do want to say that I'm not talking about relationships for relationships sake, not not where you sort of use that relationship in a manipulative way for your own sort of self-serving purpose. I'm talking about genuine, authentic connections that you nurture because you're so grateful for what somebody's taught you or the way that they've been there for you. And I think that to me is the secret source to a satisfying career. I think loyalty is everything. Uh, I agree 100% and you do that really really well and I think um, when I when you and I first worked together I think the thing that came first was the friendship and the support and then the work relationship came second I don't know if that would make sense but um, that was very much um, how you operate and you know I value your friendships and your professional advice dearly and we're still friends to this day so it's lovely this podcast is about leadership and learning from others as a leader and you've led teams around the world, what are the top three things that you focus on to support your team and drive high performance? I'd say, you know, what are your non-negotiables? For me, I think anyone can learn the technical skills to do a particular job. And if you need to help them, you know, them develop in that area, that can be a range. But what you can't teach people is the, the hows. And so as a leader, my focus and what I give most attention to um, are some of the more aspects you know, soft aspects of a team that impact on on productivity and happiness. So for me, the first non-negotiable is kindness. And we've kind of touched on that already in the conversation about relationships, but maybe I'm oversimplifying the complexities in a workplace a little bit. I don't think it should be that hard for people to get along or for people to work on problems together effectively. So I always say, be kind to yourself and to others, no matter what. I think the second one, This is going to sound a little strange, but it's just a recognition that we're all part of the same team, this concept of oneness, that despite titles and roles and hierarchies, we're all part of the same team working towards the same mission. So we should support each other without any divide, like no us and them um, within the team. And then I think the last one that I'm a big personal advocate for is the idea of personal responsibility and ownership. I think You've got to take responsibility for your own career and development plans, obviously supported, but, you know, 
for this to happen, I know that you've got to be an empowering leader, but I do like to build that sense of personal accountability into any team that I work with. I want to turn now to 2017 because in the intro I talked about the fact that you are a cancer survivor Um, and in 2017 you returned to Coca-Cola after just having your first baby, beautiful baby girl Stella, and you were diagnosed and I've written here in my notes because I I, I mean you and I spoke on the day of your um, diagnosis um, I'm not even sure if we spoke, did we? I think we both just sobbed inherently. <laughs> but you were diagnosed in what I would say is one of the most insidious cancers. And all cancers are horrible and insidious, but this one was just, uh, you know, insidious um, and had to go through some of the most extreme treatment I've ever heard of. Can you just talk me through the impact of that diagnosis for you both personally and professionally? You know, let's just say straight up that, absolutely nothing about the way I used to live my life or approach work uh, or priorities has remained the same since I was diagnosed with cancer and you are right like I had just had Stella and it was after two years and seven rounds of pretty grueling IVF treatment so to say that when that diagnosis came along that I was feeling pretty bloody blessed would be an understatement but Yeah, long story short, about one and a half years into her life, I was diagnosed with a really rare head and neck cancer. It was attached to nerves in my face, so it was moving towards my brain. So I had to move to Brisbane, away from my family, and and undergo a very long sort of 18-hour surgery, um, a massive reconstruction of my face, and that sort of left me with some, you know, difficult issues to manage, deafness in one ear and you know, you know that half my teeth and palate are missing to this day, which looks very odd. I'm glad you can't all see me. Um, but I also had the highest dose of radiation for about six weeks. So I was off work for nine months. And so let's just say it was a very, you know, highly anxious period for me and my family. But I'm happy to say that I'm, I'm four years clear now and living a really happy life and having a very satisfying career still. So, you, you know, you can get through it. You, you, you absolutely can. How did you manage through that time, the support mechanisms, focusing on what is important and not important? Can you just talk about some of the experiences that you had and how you managed through? Yeah, sure. I mean, numero uno, before I even answer that, is to say I would be nowhere without the dedication and support of family and friends like you. So for me, that was totally my saving grace through all of this. But um, I'm mindful also in like sort of giving this answer that you know, while it might not be cancer for everyone, so many of us are faced with challenges of this magnitude, either personally or someone we love in our family or friends. So I do think it's just taking a second, you know, to share some of the ways I did cope in case they're helpful for other people. It's it's not intended to be boastful or preaching in any way. And I just wanted to say that at the outset because I certainly don't have it all figured out. But the number one thing that comes into my head when something threatens your life the way this did mine was that, you know, you usually experience this horrible sense of loss of control and a sense of serious victimisation. Why is this happening to me? But in these circumstances, I think, you know, I had to find a window of empowerment because it seemed helpless, like you said. But for me, that power lay in the freedom that I had to choose, regardless of the circumstance, how I reacted to it. So we, you know, we all have that freedom to choose our attitude. And that to me was 
the way and the, the antidote to the trauma that I was I was experiencing it was to exercise that freedom. So I think, you know, the lesson for me is that you you can actually thrive in any circumstance if you make that choice. But, but it is a choice at the end of the day. You've got to almost choose your mindset immediately in the moment. Like I think one of the best lessons I can share from this, which I think is relevant to all suffering in life, is that the quicker you can move to acceptance of what is, the less you'll suffer. And I, I think I moved very quickly to full acceptance of the diagnosis, but but not of the prognosis. So, you know, I had a doctor tell me that I will have the surgery, I will have the treatment, and I will get five more years of life, and then the cancer will metastasize to some other part of my body and I will die. I mean, like this is the stuff that people get told when they go through things. So I think, you know, some people think that acceptance of negative things is some sort of passivity, but I don't think it's that. I, I think a fact is a fact. I had cancer, but... The question was, what am I going to do about it? What action am I going to take? And for me, that was to accept what is right now. I cannot change it, but but what I can change is the thing that has not yet been determined, and that was the future prognosis. So I could help determine the outcome of that. And, you know, so that's where I focused my attention. I hope that makes sense. And I think we've spoken before, Sarah, about how you changed your language. Can you just talk to me about how you changed your language too to just reframe your your mind? That's a good one to remember because I do use it all the time. Yes. It's like a little reframing mental strategy that I use to get through some of the really horrible parts of my treatment and recovery. But you can actually use it in any area where you are complaining about having to do when something seems really bad. So I used to basically... You know, it's centered in gratitude, but you, you change the words I have to to I get to. So I'll just give you an example. Instead of, oh my God, I have to go to another round of radiation today, I would say, oh, I get to go to radiation today. How lucky am I that we have treatments that enable me to recover? So, you know, change have to get and watch what happens to your sense of perspective and, and ability to cope. It's quite profound. I still use it. It's really great advice. I just think if we can purposely think think about that reframing. Let's now move to something that you're obviously really passionate about and you've spoken about. You hold the board, a board seat with the Wayside Chapel. For some people, they're not going to know about the work they do. So can you talk to me a little bit about Wayside and generally about why you are so passionate about giving back to the community? Yeah, no, sure. This is my favourite topic. But, you know, after working with the Wayside Chapel in in King's Cross for sort of three years as their partnership, some fundraising, um, you manage, I was lucky enough to be invited to their board where I continue to serve. And I think, you know, that kind of service is, is inspired by a quote that I love that I wanted to share. But I think it's a Buddhist quote that says, if you want to be miserable, think of yourself. But if you want to be happy then think of others. Um, I think that's such a beautiful quote. It's what inspires me to to do things like board service. But I I would love to tell you, if you don't mind, it it involves a swear word, (laughs) how I came to fall in love with the Wayside Chapel and learn that that quote was really sort of true. But every day when I walked to the law firm at Dibsbarker, I used to walk past the Woolworths on the corner of George Street in the city. And every day there was a homeless man, I'm sure you're all familiar you know, the cardboard sign, asking for money and asking for help. And every single day for about a month, I would buy him a McDonald's 
Happy Meal. And I would just drop it in front of him. And not once did I say more than hello. Not once did I ask him who he was, how he was. I just gave him the meal, gave myself a little pat on the back and, and went on my merry way towards the office. And I think one day after, yeah, like I said, over about a month, he lit the McCaffey meal on fire with his lighter and he threw it at me. And I turned around and I was about to, you know, unleash on him. But, you know, he, before I could even open my mouth, just looked at me dead in the eyes and said, did you ever stop to think that I might want a salad sandwich? (laughs) And I remember just sitting down with him and I was humbled by his courage. I was so embarrassed by my judgment. And I kind of made it that day my personal mission to get to know people on the streets. And I, I started doing outreach walks on the street at night with Wayside to connect with young people on the streets. I used to sleep every night once a week at a rundown old chapel in King's Cross with homeless people. Like I would sleep there overnight and go to work from there to just get to know them and be part of their daily experience in a more deep and, and authentic way. And, and yeah, I think some of the people I've met at Wayside are, have inspired me more in my life than, than people that I've met in the corporate world. So it's been quite the journey. And I, I love their um, philosophy, love over hate. Yeah. And I think, you know, we spent some time through you at Wayside Chapel and when we were at Coke and I remember just being so uh, moved by that experience because the, the one thing I remember learning there is that it doesn't take much for any of us to be in that situation, yeah? There just has yeah. to be a few misfortunes in our life or wrong decisions and we can all end up um you know just needing others to help us and to support us so that that was that was the the thing that I took away from that and which is something I don't think I'd ever thought about I I I think I I went into obviously feeling sympathetic and worried for people that live on the streets but never thought it would be something that could happen to me but in fact it it could happen quite easily that that's what I learned from that experience yeah it's beautiful that you learned that because their mission is to create community with no us and them and really what sits behind that is the fact that but for the grace of God, you're right, it could be you. And I think people often ask me, you know, from my work at Wayside, what's the difference between someone that makes it and then somebody that turns their life around, but somebody who doesn't and ends up requiring the services of Wayside? And my answer is always the same. And it's community. It, it's no different for you or I. We are nothing without each other. So I think that's the message that I like to share from the work that I do at Wayside. You're also really passionate about supporting, I said women in my initial question, but actually I'm wrong. You're really passionate about supporting anyone in their career journey um, and you're really great at giving feedback. What, why also is this really important to you? Yeah, I, I think you're right. It's men and women, like any human being. And, and if I'm really honest, there's like a selfishness in, in it as much as there is a selflessness because it's always reciprocal learning it's never one way like I learn as much from others as I have to give and I think I've already explained to you my fundamental belief in the power of support networks you know I would be nowhere through all the things that I've told you about without the men and women who have mentored me along the way so I think knowing and understanding fundamentally that not everybody has that luxury and privilege I see it as an opportunity for me to provide you know, any kind of support to anyone. And if I see it, I usually take it. I I do love it. You're right.
So as a mother of a little girl and someone who works full time and also gives back to the community, how do you find the time to have work-life balance? Is there such a thing as work-life balance? But you do a lot. <laughs> I think um, if I had a really good answer to that, I would be a millionaire. <laughs> but um, look, pre-cancer, I didn't have the balance right at all. And it's a little bit frightening when you think about it, how much time we give our workplaces in you know, and I'm all in favour of a strong work work ethic. But, you know, it, this may sound morbid, but if you ask yourself on your dying day what, you know, what I am worrying about or what I'm paying attention to, does it really matter? The answer will usually be pretty darn obvious. For mums, I think it's pretty fair to say that we would focus on our children. And so I try to remember this as much as I humanly can to get the priority right. But Graham Long, the, the, the old CEO and pastor of the Wayside, used to tell a very powerful story about his son's death. Um, you know, he used to talk about, you know, when his son used to come up to him, it seemed like an interruption. Whereas, you know, when his son passed at about age 30, how he would give anything to be interrupted in that way. And I always try to remember that and apply it. But I think, you know, one of the more practical suggestions would be, you know, I think one of the most commonly used phrases of all mums is, I just don't have the time. <laughs> um, and it's not used in relation to doing things that our kids or our bosses needs. It's almost always used in relation to doing things that we need for ourselves. And I, I, I wanted to recommend a life-changing book that I read. Um, it was called The 5am Club by Robin Sharma. But it basically encourages you to get up at 5am and use that sort of creative part of the morning more productively and since I've done that that's changed my life because it's given me my time for meditation exercise reading podcasts cooking healthy meals for the day um so I think you know it, it may be a bit controversial but I think sometimes we use the phrase as a bit of an avoidance tactic like I know mums are busy ladies don't get me wrong I'm not saying we have time for everything we want but we should definitely make time for the things that we need and I think if you ask yourself, like, what could you give up? Could you give up TV, Netflix, social media? You know, they're just some ideas. Like, what could you give up to prioritise the things that you really need? I think that's a good starting point. I actually get up early to go to train. Um, and yeah. there's something quite meditative about, I, I quite like being awake before the rest of the house. And, you know, if I'm walking to my training session, it's quite beautiful in the morning because you get to see you know, the world waking up and the sunrise, it sounds quite corny, but there's almost a peacefulness about it that you're kind of just at one with, with, with nature in a way. That sounds really corny, I know, but there's, there's just a beautiful stillness about it and peacefulness for me at that time of the morning. Oh, it's so true. And like, the, you know, the absolute best thing that I've ever done to help my career as well as my life has been the study of meditation and, connect, you know, that all that involves a lot of connection with nature. So I I really do believe what you're saying. And I, I, it wasn't until I kind of found meditation several years ago, I made it a twice daily discipline in my life that's without fail. And I think it's really taught me how to learn to cope with some of the stresses of corporate life, how to get that work-life balance that you were talking about, and just how to get that clarity that you need to be a happy and calm professional or mum or partner. You know, I really can't recommend it enough to anyone who wants to try it. I think you have to experience the benefits rather than be told about them by somebody who does it. 
you've given us some really fantastic thoughts about how to help us grow. Are there any other tips you'd like to share with us about how people can help realise their potential? Mm, um, speak less, listen more, which I've epically failed to do. So if you're rolling your eyes, I understand, but that would be something else that I might share. And if there was something you could tell your younger self starting out in your career, what would it be? Well, look, I would probably tell this to young Sarah, current Sarah and older Sarah because I have not nailed this, but I'm not going to give up. And I think it's really worry far less about what other people think of you or relying on any kind of external validation from others. I think seeking your sense of self-worth from any person or job is a recipe for, you know, disaster. And I think you should accept that you're perfect just the way you are. Has that become easier for you with the use of meditation? Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's actually, you just made me think of a beautiful quote. I think it was by Mother Teresa and she she said, I can't remember, I can't remember it exactly, but it was more or less that if everybody cleaned their own doorsteps, the whole world would be clean. So through meditation, I've been able to become more, like have an expanded consciousness and become more self-aware. And I've focused on my own growth and my own happiness. And in doing that, it kind of has a ripple effect on the, the world, on the, the larger collective. So yeah, definitely meditation is the, is the answer for me. I am really passionate about looking after your physical health, but particularly the benefits of that brings to your mental health. For you, how do you do that outside of meditation? What are you a big fan of in terms of um, physical exercise? I'm probably nowhere near as good as you, Ange, but I do 20 minutes of meditation every day and half an hour of walking. And I, I like you, either do a walking meditation or I do a walking podcast. <laughs> you have to listen to your podcasts. It's almost like podcasts have replaced music in my life. Yes. Like I don't listen to music anymore. I just listen to podcasts at every second, spare second that I have. So finally, this is a podcast for our people and we've talked about you're a fan of podcasts. Are there any that you would recommend to the people listening to this? Yep, for sure. I've got an endless list, but I'll just try and pick the sort of top five that are in this area of realising your potential and, and that have guests that cover topics that are relevant to that. And I think... The first one would be Russell Brand, not, not an obvious one, but he has the best guest. It's called Under the Skin, and you buy that by Luminary. Uh, the next one would be my meditation guru and teacher, Tom Knowles. His podcast is called The Vedic Worldview. Uh, there was another one by an author called Mo Gaudat. I read his book um, called Solve for Happy, and he's got a podcast called Slow Mo. And then the last two would be one called Mind Valley and the other one would be On Purpose by Jay Shetty. They would be my top five. I love it. You know what? I ask every single guest this question and I've got the best list of podcasts that I can dip into. Sarah Cizak, thank you so much for joining us. Truly inspirational story. My pleasure, Ange. Well, that brings an end to my conversation with Sarah. There were some really great messages in that conversation. And for me, the things I'm going to think about are relationships are the cornerstone of all great careers and opportunities. 
This goes beyond networking and are the genuine and authentic connections that you truly nurture with the people that have been there for you. Why is it always good to speak less and listen more? And we can all thrive in any circumstance if we choose the right mindset. Well, that's it for this episode. I hope you found it interesting and it sparked your curiosity to find out more. We have plenty of materials and resources to support this episode, so remember to check the show notes. For more leadership content, subscribe to the podcast and follow Accolade Wines on LinkedIn. These podcasts would not be possible without a super production team. Big thanks to the team at Martino Consulting for producing this series of Realising Your Potential. 